Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and to whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the gospel of the Lord. Lord You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning again and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm also one of the priests here on staff. It's so good to be with you, to see so many of you back from summer vacation and to be together. In his book, Questions Are the Answers, MIT professor Hal Gregerson identifies what he describes as catalytic questions. That is, those questions that give birth to or spur on new ways of thinking new ways of imagining, those questions that blow up previously held assumptions and categories, that challenge and overturn and invite. Questions are powerful. Different from declarative, indicative statements, they can serve to draw out, to clarify, to upend in this unique kind of way. A well-chosen, well-timed question That can make all the difference in relationship, in conversation, in possibility. Questions are powerful. At Church of the Cross, we are beginning today a new sermon series centered on questions. On the questions Jesus asks. The questions he asks of his followers. The questions recorded in his interactions with the people of the first century. The questions he asks even of us. Perhaps we don't often think of Jesus as a questioner. He's a teacher. But the Gospels actually record some 300 questions that Jesus asked. Like any good teacher, Jesus asks questions. Good questions. Many of them even catalytic. But it is striking. It's unexpected even for us that Jesus asks so many questions. When the second person of the Trinity, the son of the living God, entered into creation as a human person, he taught, he proclaimed, he healed, and he asked questions. And from the earliest passage of scripture, we see that Jesus' question asking is actually in line with the way, the manner in which God has engaged with people. From Genesis 3 and 4, God's initial reaction to the crises of human sin and violence, the first murder, brokenness in his creation, are in fact questions. Where are you? What is this thing that you have done? Where's your brother? 
questions. Questions that Jesus echoes in his own questions we find in the Gospels. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at a a selection, a small selection of the 300 questions. You'll be relieved to know. This is not the start of a six-year sermon series. (laughs) And we're focusing on the questions that Jesus asks really for two reasons. First, so many of the questions Jesus asks, recorded in the Gospels, press on fundamental, central areas of our lives. Questions like, what do you want? Do you want to be well? Why are you so afraid? Others like them, even spoken, recorded so long ago, these are contemporary questions. Jesus, as the most brilliant person who ever lived, has questions that cut to the core of reality, the very core of human life in every age. Questions about the orientation of our lives, our fears, our loves, our identity and perspective. Questions about authority and questions that powerfully can shape our lives today. That's the first reason. Second, we're focusing on the questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. Because Jesus, as the risen Lord, alive at the right hand of the Father, still asks questions today. Jesus is still asking questions of us, his church today, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to be in Christ, to be following Jesus on the way of the cross, is to be in this ongoing relationship, ongoing communion with one who asks, who asks probing, challenging, catalytic questions of us through scripture and community, by the inner witness of his Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to ask questions of his followers. And as we attend to the questions recorded in the Gospels here, we might yet get better attuned to the questions he's asking in our lives today. We might more clearly discern his voice in the way he is lovingly, so lovingly, inviting us to consider ourselves, consider our lives in the light of who he is. With that kind of introduction to this series, let's pause in prayer before we dive into the question before us today. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the gift of his word, the gift of the words that he spoke recorded in the gospels that you caused Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to remember by your spirit. And would you now, by that same spirit, enliven our hearts and our minds to hear your voice, to see you clearly, and to discern the ways that you are inviting us here today to something more. In your name we pray. Amen. Now in our reading this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus actually asks two questions. First, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And second, and more pointedly, you. Who do you say that I am? There is no question more important than this second question Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am? Everything hangs in the balance. 20th century Dutch theologian William Hooft writing about the proclamation of God's good news, once remarked that 
evangelism, that preaching, that proclaiming is not adequately described as answering the questions women and men are asking, however deep those questions might be. Rather, he said, the announcement of God's good news is in the first place, the transmission, the posing of God's question to women and men. And the question is and remains, he writes, whether we are willing to accept Jesus the Christ as the one and only Lord of life. Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? The initial response recorded in chapter 16 given to this question, provided by Peter, who, who is kind of the spokesperson for the disciples in this passage, is that some see in Jesus John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And this response suggests that there's a recognition of the potency of Jesus' life to this point. There's a sense of continuity of his life with those who had come before. Like the prophets of old, Jesus' public life has been marked by this commitment to Yahweh, the plans and purposes of God, and marked by preaching, teaching, acts of power that suggest God's favor, God's presence is with him in a unique kind of way. That people are making these connections suggests the high regard they have for Jesus. Yet these responses also suggest an incomplete understanding. Yes, he's like John the Baptist, like Elijah, like Jeremiah and the prophets of old. But he's something more as well. To put this in contemporary terms, language, we might say, yes, Jesus was a remarkable and brilliant human teacher. Yes, he's the focus of religious devotion, the focus of a great world religion. Yes, he was a miracle worker who did wondrous things, a paragon of compassion and virtue. Yes, yes, yes. But the claim of our text today, and the claim of Scripture, the central claim, in fact, of the Christian faith, is that he is something more, something so much more. The something more whom Jesus is comes through as he presses the question, what about you? Who do you, you who have walked with me, you who have seen me and know me, who do you say that I am? In the remarkable and free, that's important, free, online short film, Godspeed, Pastor Matt Canlis includes an interview with a particular parishioner who'd recently converted to Christianity, become a follower of Jesus. And that parishioner, a Scotsman living in this small village in Scotland, describes how part of his conversion, part of his conviction that Jesus was who he said he was, is born out of the recognition that Jesus ministered in the region of Galilee, in a place that was not dissimilar to the villages that this man had grown up in, he'd lived in for the entirety of his life. It was a similar kind of scope, similar kind of place. And this fact was notable for this man, for it suggested to him that Jesus lived and ministered on a scale and among people where he would have been known, where he could not have hidden his true nature, who he really was, where he couldn't have presented a public face, put on a big show without integrity, without backing it up. You see this man comments, in the village, everyone knows who you are. The testimony of those who know a person most intimately is valuable. 
That's a truth holding onto in our online age of social media avatar and where we're communicating about ourselves at such distance. Those who walk, who know us most intimately and their testimony about us is most valuable. And here it seems Jesus desires to know what those who've walked with him thus far make of him. Who do you say I am? In response to this question, Peter gives this clear answer, unequivocal. You are the Christ, son of the living God. But the word Christ there has an article, the Christ, in front should remind us that the word is not actually Jesus' last name. Like you could flip open the phone book and look up the Christ and find Jesus. It's not that. Rather, the title Christ is this Greek translation of this Hebrew word many of us will be familiar with, Messiah. And the word Messiah itself is connected to the verb to anoint, literally meaning the anointed one. You are the anointed one. To be anointed was to be set apart for a specific task, purpose, or calling. Kings in Israel's tradition were anointed with oil, for example. And the term Messiah had emerged out of the collective memory and longing, the hopes, the fears, the dreams of this people, such that by the time of Jesus' life and ministry, it described this particular figure, this particular person set aside and through whom God's plans and purposes would be realized. The one through whom the longings of Israel would be realized. Psalm 103, the psalm we prayed this morning, gets at some of those longings. Longings for freedom from oppression, for their own healing and restoration for their relationship with God. These deep and comprehensive longings of God's people. I noticed last night that Andrew Luck, the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, suddenly retired last night. And there's big news, very unexpected. And there's something of like the quarterback for the professional football team, the long-suffering professional football team, the way this drafted quarterback becomes invested with the collective memories. Maybe he'll be like Johnny Unitas. Maybe he'll be like Peyton Manning. The memories and longings and hopes all invested in this one person or figure. That's a pale reflection of what was going on in the imagination, the life of the people of Israel. To quote the the Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, Messiah the Christ was the one in whom the hopes and fears of Israel of all the years were met, were invested. You see, in naming Jesus this way, Peter's describing him as something more than a prophet, more than another in the line of God's purposes and plans. Rather, he's naming Jesus as the one in whom those purposes and plans finally come to fruition, are finally realized. Who are you? You're the one for whom we've waited, the one for whom we've longed. You're the embodiment of God's faithfulness to us, his love for us. In you, our greatest longings are satisfied our deepest fears quieted, our most dared-for hopes realized. We would describe our longings differently, of course. 
We would not use the same language as the people of Israel. How we might name our longings is conditioned by our time, by our place. We use contemporary terms, modern language. The current issue of the Magnolia Journal, a, a lifestyle magazine from Chip and Joanna Gaines up 135, I-35, has the headline, In Pursuit of Wholeness. In Pursuit of Wholeness. Where the word wholeness is scribbled over the word happiness. The Declaration of Independence names the pursuit of happiness. But the language of wholeness does get at a truer, deeper, more comprehensive longing, doesn't it? We want to be happy, but more than that, we long for whole lives. Lives that cohere, that have integrity, that make sense. Lives of, of healthy relationships, meaningful work, freedom from fear and insecurity. We long for a whole world set right in a holistic way where there's justice and equity, where our relationship with the world around us is in order. We long perhaps to be free of pasts and of self-contradicting, self-canceling habits. We long for a future. We long to be more fully human and long after for something that is beyond ourselves. We live in pursuit of wholeness. To use this kind of language, we might translate Peter's answer, his confession of who Jesus is, this way. You are the one who is whole and the one who makes us whole. You are the one in whom all things are made whole. This gets at the scope, at the scale of what Peter names here, how he describes Jesus. And it stresses the importance of this question. Will we take those longings, those longings for wholeness, for integrity, for a life that is healed and restored, will we take them to Jesus? Will our pursuit of wholeness lead us to Jesus the Christ, the one who can and does and will make us whole? In the Coelho household over the past year, we've been listening to this song, Waymaker, by the Nigerian Pentecostal worship leader, Sinek. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But she is incredible. And this song has lyrics that are simple and repeated, but they are powerful. Of Jesus, Sinek sings, you are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You wipe away all tears. You mend the broken heart. You're the answer to it all. You should listen to the song. It makes you want to move. Even me, who can't really dance, it makes me want to move. So you should listen. It sounds better there. But you're the answer to it all. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Part of the power of that song, I think, for me, is that it comes from a culture that's not my own. It's powerful to hear someone in such a different context, names longings that I can identify with, that I can relate to, and also share with me in naming Jesus as the fulfillment of those longings. You see, the, the hope of a Messiah was a Jewish hope, particular to the people of Israel. But where Jesus asks this question, and where Peter makes this confession, suggests he's something more than just the fulfillment of Jewish hopes. 
Verse 13 identifies this question and answers taking place in the city of Caesarea Philippi. This was a city that's on the foremost edge of what was Israel at the time. And the city itself was largely populated by the nations, by Gentiles. And the confession here that Jesus is son of the living God would have been a point of contrast with the worship that took place in this city. The worship in Caesarea Philippi was oriented around the god of fertility known as Pan, or in the Old Testament as Baal. So in this setting, the claim that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God, is a claim over and against other powers, over and against other sources that might promise wholeness. This, this is the son of the living God, the one who moves, who acts dynamically and saves. And the confession here at this place on the boundary between God's people and the nations is a confession, a suggestion, an implication that God's anointed one, God's chosen and redemptive king, Jesus, is the answer in all cultures and at all times. I know that this is such a bold, audacious claim, especially in our times. But the claim of Scripture is that the scope of his promise is not limited to a particular place, time, or people. So in Nigeria and in Hong Kong, in the Philippines, in Syria, in Mexico, in Israel, in Texas, the same answer can be given among all peoples at all times. He's Christ, the Christ, the one who is whole and makes us all whole. We would normally associate this question, who do you say Jesus is? with the moment of conversion, wouldn't we? Right? It's appropriate. It's, you're converted from perhaps one way of looking at Jesus to seeing him as something more. It's this moment in time. That's appropriate to do so. But it's also a question for all times, for every day. Will we continue to see Jesus for who he is, continue to see him as our hope for wholeness, the one in whom our longings are met and satisfied. Every disappointment, every fear or anxiety, every provoked longing is an answer, an opportunity to answer freshly, who do you say I am? There is such a strong temptation to see our wholeness as bound up in other things. The hope the satisfaction of our longings bound up elsewhere. To pursue wholeness through our work, our success, our status in relationships, single or married, through our children and the legacy we hope to leave them. This week, controversy erupted around the president's use of phrases that seemed to link himself to some kind of messianic hope. Among other things, that's perhaps a reminder of the ways that we are tempted to look at political powers, wherever they might fall on the spectrum, for the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. The truth of Peter's simple, direct confession here, that Jesus is the Christ, is one that must be lived. It's not simply an answer that is given and then left behind, like the test that you cram to get the answers correct and then quickly forget all the information. Rather, it's a truth to be inhabited 
expressed in the whole of our lives, for the whole of our lives. It's an allegiance to reality, that Jesus is the answer that unfolds from this day to our last. So absolutely, if you have never yet confessed this truth, Jesus, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Do it now, do it today. But also, if you have, endure, persevere in that confession, such that you might stand on your last day and say with, for example, Polycarp, this great bishop of the church, who when faced with death on account of his confession, this confession, declared 86 years have I served him. He's done me no wrong. How can I turn for my king and my savior? Jesus' response to Peter's answer to this confession suggests how very important this question and our answer lived out is. A life lived with Jesus recognizes the fulfillment of our longings looks different. Jesus' comment in verse 17 that this is something revealed to Peter by God the Father suggests that this answer, this confession, you're the Christ, is an indication of God's work in one's life. How one responds to Jesus is a reflection of where one stands in relation to God, his kingdom, his purposes. Time and again in the Gospels, Jesus declares the scriptures have and do point to him and that those that know the Father know and recognize him for who he is. This question, who do we say Jesus is, the confession of our lips, of our lived lives, we might say are this litmus test of sorts, reflective of where we stand in relation to God's purposes and plans. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, a truth revealed is an indication of alignment with, acceptance of God's grace and goodness, his good purposes, his unshakable kingdom, his just reign and rule. And for those to whom this truth is made known, for those who see, rightly see, their longings fulfilled in Christ, there's the promise of blessing. The same word Jesus uses here is found in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Congratulations, Peter. Happy are you who see the Christ, who welcome and accept to whom this is revealed. You lucky ones, blessed are you. And the full extent of this blessedness is outlined in the final verses of our reading. More ink has been spilt on these verses than perhaps any other in the Gospel of Matthew or all the Gospels. These verses and their meaning are very much at the crux of distinctions between Catholic and Protestant traditions and the, the role of Peter and his successors in the church. But that for us might be a distraction today from this question and the, the question Jesus poses upon us. And what we see in these verses for us is the blessing of recognizing Jesus for who he is. We see that as Peter recognizes who Jesus is, he's given this new name. 
His identity is changed in some way. It's not that his identity is obliterated. He's still Simon Barjona, but he says, you're, you're Peter now in recognition of Christ. With that new name, he's, he's given this new identity. He's given this new purpose. He's a participant now in God's redemptive purposes and plans. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter now has a new name and a fresh purpose in God's fulfillment of the promises, the longings of his people. Peter's been invited in, invited in into this central role and place. This same idea of participation is around the language of loosing and binding. The force is not that whatever Peter says on, on earth will happen in heaven, but rather how on what Peter has loosed and bound has already been loosed and bound in heaven. That's lost in our English translations. That is, Peter is made by his recognition of Jesus to participate more fully in God's plans and purposes, his pleasing and perfect will. He walks in alignment with the wholeness that God is bringing in Jesus. This is part of the wholeness promised to us in Jesus, the Christ. More than just the overcoming of our lack, our brokenness, in him you can find new names, new identities, and new and joyful participation. Participation in God's purposes for the world, for creation. In answering this question as he does, Peter's caught up now in God's great drama of redemption, of bringing wholeness to his creation in his answer revealed to him by the Father, his recognition that Jesus is something more, something so much more. Peter himself is made something more. He's made a repairer of the breach in the words of Isaiah. He becomes one through whom the power of God is shown among the nations as we prayed in our collect. He's made something more, so much more. May it be so among us. So this day, yet again, and tomorrow, and the day after, who do you say he is? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for, again, these words of Scripture. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts and our minds? to make this confession with your disciples and to live this confession with your disciples. In the days and weeks ahead, would you empower us by your spirit to see clearly the ways that our longings, our hopes, our fears are met in you and you alone? And as we do so, would we receive from you the blessedness of that confession? Would we receive the new names and identities you have for us as beloved sons and daughters? And would we become more fully participants? Participants in your work, the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, in making all things whole, making all things new. We pray this in the strong name of the Son of the living God. Amen.